Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast with host Patrick Donahoe, author of the best-selling personal finance book, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, and one of the nation's most influential financial advisors. The Wealth Standard's focus this season is investing. 2020 opened with markets and asset prices at all-time highs, but many of us experience more financial uncertainty now than we did a decade ago. Although there are more choices and opportunities than ever before, the risk-to-reward ratio teeters on a global fulcrum, contributing to the roller coaster of emotions surrounding financial well-being. It seems like everyone is walking on eggshells. This season, we'll cover topics revolving around investment theory and strategy, atypical investments versus conventional investments, and the role of investing within personal wealth strategies. The Wealth Standard Podcast is committed to inspiring you to be more financially free. There is no better time to gain clarity about your wealth strategy, your investments, and your financial future than now. Hi, everyone. This is Patrick. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode, episode number two of 2021. You guys are going to really enjoy this one. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you have dedicated time to informing yourself, becoming more aware of what's going on, and subsequently prepare yourself for a strategic response as opposed to an insane emotional reaction, which seems to be the rule these days. But hopefully you find yourself in the group of exception. So my guest is Jim Rickards. Jim has written a number of books. He's held some internal roles with government, uh, has worked with CIA, has worked with central banks. He's worked as a consultant in other areas as well. So he's had a front row seat for several decades to be able to speak intelligently about monetary policy, fiscal policy, and what's going on, not just in the US economy, but also the global economy. His books include Currency Wars, uh, Road to Ruin, The Big Drop, I believe, A New Case for Gold. I think one of them, I have a list here, Aftermath is uh, his more recent one, but he has a brand new one. It's called The New Great Depression. So not the rosiest of titles, but at the same time, sometimes we need to be smacked a little bit in the face in order to become aware of something that was already there. And so Jim, he's a great guy. He spoke at our Cashflow Wealth Summit a few years ago, and he has some really interesting things to say. We get into a lot of that and give a preview of his new book. If you guys can go to jamesrickardsproject.com, you can also go to Amazon and purchase all of his books. Of course, we will put all of those links in the show notes. But guys, you know, we operate our lives in an economy, an environment that is already established. And being aware of it allows you to position yourself to respond to circumstances, respond to experiences strategically, as opposed to what has become the rule, which is to emotionally react. And I understand, I can sympathize to an extent, this last 12 months-ish has been a challenge, and that challenge is not going to go away. That's part of life. Obviously, it's a little bit more extreme now. But I look at what's occurred in 2020 and what that has done to create some ripples into what's going to happen in 2021 and beyond. The world's changed. And from a psychological perspective, from an environment perspective, your awareness is going to allow you to show up, show up to be successful, show up to make wise investments, 
and overall show up to live a more meaningful life. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. Again, Jim's website is jamesrickardsproject.com. You can also go to Amazon where all of his books are available. And I believe he has all of them on Audible as well for you audiobook listeners. That's it for today. Thank you guys for joining. Appreciate the support. Now on to my interview with Mr. Jim Rickards. Taking a break from the show, you know, entrepreneurs inspire me. I love meeting leaders of successful ventures who discover an idea, formulate the business, and then execute. You'd assume that they know how to structure their personal finances. I believed that too, but I was wrong. Entrepreneurs are never taught to effectively manage their wealth to work alongside their business and lifestyle. All of that work, effort, toil, and time wasted. Entrepreneur 101 is an online course that teaches you a financial strategy that works so that success is not a flash in the pan, but lasting. The spirit of the entrepreneur doesn't have to be compromised. Register for the Entrepreneur 101 course today for free at thewealthstandard.com forward slash E-N-T. That's Echo November Tango. Thewealthstandard.com forward slash E-N-T. Jim, thanks so much for joining me today. It's uh, really is a pleasure spoken extensively about your books. I went up and found a couple of the books that you've written in the past. Oh, there they are. <laughs> I don't have uh, all of them here. A couple of them are at, at home, but you have a new book that's coming out and it is uh, timely because it relates to COVID-19 and what impact that has made on the economy. Both, you know, we're seeing some impact right now, but also there's a lot more to, to come. So I'm excited to talk to you about your new book. Congratulations. Thank you, Patrick. It's great to be with you. And thanks for kind of showing all the other books. The great thing about having a new book is that a lot of people, if they haven't read my books before and they like it or they're interested, they'll go back and look at the old books. And that's, that's helpful too. And those are all still timely. The book is called The New Great Depression, Winners and Losers in a Post-Pandemic World. It's coming out. The official publication date is uh, January 12th, next Tuesday, but it's available for pre-order right now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It'll be in the bookstores on the on the 12th. It's doing very well. It's it's interesting. Even it's not officially out. It will be in a couple of days. Some of you already see the broadcast later. It'll, it'll already be out, which is great. But we're already even in pre-order where the on Amazon, we're the number one ranked book on money and monetary policy, the number one ranked hardcover in economic policy, and the number one ranked hardcover in wealth management. So those are kind of the three categories that or buckets that Amazon puts me in. So we're number one in all those, number one hardcover, uh, number one new release. So uh, we'll see we'll see how it goes, but we're off to a good start. The book is generating a lot of interest. That's a great tailwind going into a new year. And obviously, like I said, timeliness of you know, the election and potentially, you know, new president and new makeup of uh, Congress, right? It's, there's going to be a lot, a lot going on this coming year. And I know you've spoken to, you know, monetary policy in the, in the past and all of your books, but you do it in a way that is, that's understandable. So I'm hoping for those new readers, they'll also go back and look at what you have written in the past. And also, I think it was your most recent book before this one, Aftermath, where you actually talked a little bit about, you know, potential pandemic and how that could be, you know, one of those tipping points to to create some chaos in in the economy. 
not just the economy, but also kind of riots in the streets. You're right. That was uh, my last book, Aftermath. Thank you for mentioning it. it. Came out in 2019, July 2019. But if the viewers have it, or you, you know, you get a copy of it, turn to page 290, and right there it says the odds of a pandemic in the next several years are 100. percent The way I put it, the odds of not having a pandemic are close to zero, meaning there's going to be a pandemic, and it will be followed by uh, armed militias and riots in the streets. So there's nothing that happened in 2020 that you should have been surprised by if you had read that book in 2019. So now the question with the new book, The New Great Depression, coming out in early 2021, we're taking it forward, talking about what's going to happen in 2021 and 2022. So really, we'll prepare you for what's coming, which is what I aim for in all my books. So let's speak to that. Is this a continuation of some of the, the previous books that you've written, or is this something that speaks just to what's going on based on COVID-19? It's really both. I mean, pandemics don't come along every day, certainly not of this magnitude. Uh, it's interesting. There was one of the studies I I cite in the book, and I, I kind of tease people. I say, you know, Amazon has a certain price or Barnes & Noble has a certain price. And it's funny, the more books you sell, they, they lower the price. You'd think they do the opposite, but the price gets lower, <laughs> which, which is a good sign in terms of sales. But you know, one of the things you know, I mentioned to people is that the pandemic didn't cause the depression. The pandemic is a pandemic. The virus caused the pandemic. It was the policy response that caused the pandemic because you didn't have to make all the choices we made. But there was one study I, I cite in the book and I tell people, you know, it's worth the price just to get the end notes. I hope you love the book and I enjoyed writing it. But the end notes are a valuable source of primary material for people who want to look a little bit deeper. There was a paper prepared by the economists of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and two academics, I believe they're from the University of California, but top schools and some collaborators. And they had a 650-year time series. That's my kind of time series. You know, a lot of people will do a one-year, two-year time series and do the correlations and regressions. And I consider that junk science because one or two years is not long enough to identify trends. 650 years, now you're talking. They went back to the Black Death in 1350, and they looked at every pandemic, beginning with the Black Death, in which 200,000 or more people died. And there were only 15, well, I guess 15 is a lot, but they, they identified 15 that met those criteria. The two biggest, of course, were the Black Death, in which about 75 million people died, and the Spanish flu of 1918, in which about 100 million people died, according to the best estimates. After that, there were two with 2 million, about 2 million fatalities, and then it kind of drops off. And then they were looking at 100,000 or more. There were 15 pandemics that made the list. COVID is going to end up being number three. I mean, right now, it's about 1.8 million fatalities, but it's nowhere near over. It's going to go past 2 million. It's going to be the third greatest, third most fatal, lethal plague pandemic in 650 years. So that's how bad this is. And what they showed is that, because they were economists, and but they had the pandemic data, and they said, well, when did the economy get back to normal? I'll put normal in quotation marks, but we're not getting back to normal. We'll get through it. Life will go on, but it will not be the same. But when did interest rates, employment rates, output things sort of normalize after the pandemic? The answer is it took 30 to 40 years, not 30 weeks, not 30 months, but 30 years. So when I hear Jay Powell say, you know, we think interest rates are going to be zero till 2023, I'm like, fine, Jay, why don't you try 2043? Because that's more, more like it. The effects of this will be intergenerational. And again, as an example, I grew up in the 1950s, early 60s. I was a very prosperous time in the US economy. I did not live through the Great Depression, but my parents did and my grandparents did. 
So I was kind of raised with a depression mentality, even though I didn't live through the depression. And we used to go out as kind of nine-year-olds with our wagons and go door to door and collect tin cans and newspapers. And we weren't doing it for environmental reasons. Maybe it was good for that, but we were recycling. There was, there was steel in that tin. You could melt it down and make battleships and airplanes. So we had that mentality. That didn't really change until the late 1960s when the baby boom kind of came of age. And then it was like, you know, party, rock and roll, credit cards, spend. Okay, things changed. But the, the depression mentality, the adaptive behavior lasted through the 50s and 60s. It lasted for 30 years, which is exactly what these economists have demonstrated using other examples. So I make the same point. You know, I have uh, three, four-year-old grandchildren, a, a number of them. Well, they get ready for school in the morning. And the mother says, you know, put on your hat, put on your coats and put on your mask. Well, a four-year-old puts a mask on. The kids are very adaptable, but that is going to have a lifetime impact. You're going to remember, oh, when I was a little kid, I wore masks to school because there were germs in the air. It affects everything you do for the rest of your life. And so, so the effects will be intergenerational. They'll last for decades, not years. Another example, 1929, the stock market crash. You know, a lot of people know that was the start of the Great Depression. Okay, stock market went down 89.2%, almost 90% between 1929 and 1932. And you ask people, when did it get back to normal? When did the stock market get back to where it was before the crash? The answer is 1954. It took 25 years to get back to where it was. Now, it doesn't mean you couldn't make money in the meantime. If you bought the bottom in 1932, you could have made a lot of money in 1933, and some people did. But, but the point is, it didn't recover its old high for 25 years. A lot of people around 1929 were dead by then. Don't believe in the V-shaped recovery. Don't believe when you hear about pent-up demand. None of that is true. It's going to be a long, slow recovery, probably in another recession right now. We're probably in a double-dip recession. We had a recession from the first and second quarter of 2020. We're probably in another recession right now after a partial recovery in the third and fourth quarter. So that's the kind of world we're living in. So of that 600, so 650 years history is, is incredible. Was there a trend where the recovery sped up? Because now you arguably, you know, we have a different way in which society operates, right? From a communication standpoint, from an innovation standpoint, is that going to have an impact on a potential? And again, I, I agree, we're not going to recover to what, where, we, where we were, but is there going to be a, a speedier rebound than there has been in the past? I doubt it. And there's a very good book on this subject by a professor and author, Robert Gordon. It's, it's like a 700-page book. It's a, it's, a, it's a doorstop. But I read the whole thing and a lot of others have as well. And he makes the point that the greatest period of productivity in U.S. history, roughly 1870 to 1940, and then continuation of that as late as 1970. So basically about 100 years. And this was the age of what? Uh, you know, the light bulb, the phonograph, movies, internal combustion engine, yeah. airplanes, you know, et cetera. And that really transformed things. So for 5,000 years of civilization prior to 1870, what did women do? Well, women, 50% of the population, spent 75% of their time hauling water. You know, you had, to, you had to get it from a well or a stream or a lake or a pond or someplace and you hauled the water in. Now you used it for cooking and bathing and cleaning and boiling and, and lots of other things. Half the population spent three quarters of their time hauling water. 1870 was when indoor plumbing began. It took 70 years to network everything. There, there's a network for you. The plumbing network is way more powerful than the internet. When it came to the impact in terms of productivity, all of a sudden, half the workforce with a lot of brain power, women specifically, didn't have to haul water. They could do a million other things, and they did. So 
And then recently, and I say recently, the last 20 years, productivity has been declining. Everyone's like, well, look at all this technology. Uh, you know, it's going to be, we're going to be more productive than ever. It's not true. It doesn't show up in the numbers. Why is that? Well, one, I talked to one guy who's a guru of technology, and he said, um, well, yeah, we have a lot of technology, but we're using it to waste time. You know, how much online shopping do we really need? How many emails do you answer where you're being polite? But, you know, it's not exactly what I was planning to do today. I'm not necessarily talking about playing video games. That's an even bigger waste of time. But there's some evidence that all the technology, yeah, we're, we're connected and we're networked, sure, but we're not using it for productive purposes. And so that may be actually dragging down productivity. So that's, that's kind of best case. Worst case is that because of lockdowns and shutdowns and the failure of small business and unemployment going up, and it's not just the unemployment rate. Remember, it's the labor force participation. There are over 10 million able-bodied Americans between the ages of 25 and 54 who are not working, uh, who are, but they're not counted as unemployed because they're not looking for a job. They're not in the labor force. Now, there's always good reasons for some people not to be in the labor force. You could be a student. You could be a, a spouse with three kids at home, and, and that's your job, so to speak, but not to that extent, not that number. And so if you add that group, able-bodied, working-age Americans, you're not looking for a job, add them to the unemployed, um, the unemployment rate's more like 15%, not 7 or 8%. So that's, that's the reality. Well, I look at the the impact, right? And obviously you're alluding a lot to the psychological impact of previous, you know, pandemics or, you know, where lots of people died and it was a big, a big scare, but even, you know, 1929 with, you know, stock market fallout and, you know, very tough economic times, you know, it it impacts uh, psychology long-term and it takes a while to get out of that. And that's where I, as I reflect on 2020, right, we were in essence forced into behaving a certain way whether it was staying home, wearing masks, uh, you know, not being near people, not being in an office. I think that's going to have, again, it's fear sometimes just like solidifies in people an understanding of how things are. And I don't think that's going to go, it's not going to go away anytime, anytime soon. And you're right. I think from like a, a, a collective psychology, you've had so much distraction where even though there was a lot of fear and people were home, they were distracted by uh, entertainment, right? Netflix, uh, uh, games, et cetera. So that does not lead to productivity and, and solutions. So it's interesting. So how does, you know, what are some of the primary ways in which like our global society has been uh, impacted this psychological way that, you know, won't necessarily come back? You and I were talking before we started recording about the commercial real estate market, right? And that People aren't just going to go back to work and be willing to work in an office the same way they've done in the past, which is going to impact prices. Where do you see some of those primary areas that are going to be impacted uh, long-term? Well, it's a lot to unpack, but let's uh, let's try. First of all, uh, you're right about the mental health and behavioral aspects of this. I have an entire chapter on that in, in my book, The New Great Depression. Chapter five talks just about, about the mental health aspects. And when I wrote the book, you know, you normally start writing a book, you start with your research and then you, you know, build your outline, and then you write the book. But this is the first book that connects the pandemic and the depression. So there weren't any other books I could pick up. And so here's another book on this. This is the first book that, that really tackles those subjects. So to form a baseline, I went back to the Spanish flu of 1918, which you mentioned earlier. And there were, there were, five or more really excellent books on that. Interestingly, they've mostly been written in the last 20 years. Hmm. You would think that people in the 1930s and 1940s would have been writing about this. They weren't. It was almost as if there was a 
general amnesia about it. Or people just didn't really want to talk about it. Mm. It was probably too horrific with 100 million dead. But recently, scholars and journalists have tackled this, and there are some very good books on that. In looking at that, I realized that the one of the great underreported, underestimated aspects of it were the mental health aspects of this. And so I make the point that the lockdowns, first of all, lockdowns don't work. They do not stop the spread of the virus. And they kill more people than they save. In theory, you could find some people who were saved, arguably, but they kill a lot more people. And here's why. Suicide rates have tripled. Drug abuse, alcohol abuse, domestic abuse, just the mental effects, the psychological effects of the lockdown are anger, depression, anxiety, and sometimes it manifests itself in violence. When I look at you know, the summer of 2020, you know, Antifa and, and other groups, you know, burning down U.S. cities, Kenosha, Seattle, Port. We all know the stories. We, we saw it on the news. And supposedly all that related to George Floyd. Well, George Floyd might have been a catalyst. Okay. But at least some of that, I'm not saying all of it, but some of it was just this pent up, you know, depression and anxiety that, that came out that manifested itself in this kind of violence. And we're seeing it now the, the violence is broken out on Capitol Hill. The demonstration it was it turned into an assault. I breaking news, and I see somebody apparently was shot, and they 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 got the vice president out of there and took him to uh, another location. So I'm not justifying any of it. Violence is bad. Property destruction is bad. I'm not condoning any of it. Period. But the fact that it's happening comes as no surprise because it is one of the effects of everything we're talking about. And But that'll stay with us. And that was really the point I was making earlier, which is that we won't get back to normal. Uh, there'll kind of be a new normal. As far as investment decisions are concerned, one of the, the anecdotes I tell in, in the book, and this is in chapter, uh, chapter five going into chapter six, a lot of the, the viewers, Patrick, will be familiar with the, with the Weimar Republic hyperinflation in Germany in the early 1920s. That story is very well known. But there was an individual, his name was Ugo Stinez, and he saw it coming, and he took out massive loans. He borrowed a ton of Reichsmarks, which was the currency, and he invested in hard assets. He bought coal, steel, railroads, shipping lines, transportation, etc. Then the hyperinflation came. Well, he paid back his loans. Uh, I would say pennies on the dollar, but it was like thousands of a penny on the dollar. I mean, basically it was worthless, but he, he technically he paid back the loans in worthless rice marks and he kept the assets. And he, was the, he became the richest man in Germany. And his name, I don't speak German, but his name in German was the Inflationskönig, which means the inflation king. <laughs> so I tell that story to make a point, which is that even in the most horrific hyperinflation devaluation in the history of developed industrial economies, one guy became the richest man in Germany because he saw it coming and, and made the right moves. Joseph P. Kennedy was another one. So Joseph P. Kennedy, what did he do in the 1920s? And he got together in a gang with Big Mike Meehan and a few others, and they, they ramped the stocks, they bid them up, and then all the suckers came in and bought them, and then they dumped them on the suckers and walked away with all the profits until October 1929, then he could see the crash coming, and he shorted the stock market and made another fortune in the early 30s. He was one of the richest people in America. So again, so one guy becomes the richest guy in Germany in the horrific hyperinflation, and Kennedy becomes one of the richest people in America during the greatest stock market crash in history. So my point is that again, even in advert, even in adverse markets, even in very disastrous scenarios, if you have the right analysis and you can anticipate the move, then you can at a minimum preserve wealth and, and possibly even uh, prosper enormously. Yeah. And business-wise too. I mean, I looked into just this year, 2020 being one of the most highest retail sales in, in history, yet you had a lot of those in-person retailers uh, go bankrupt. 
Correct. There's been entrepreneurs who have bought those assets and bought branding and used the internet and have just uh, crushed it. So there's always there's always opportunity and the environment's always going to change. Maybe not to these extremes, but now we're in it. There's really no going back. And so now it's you know having the right mindset and mentality to look for those opportunities. Where yeah, else do you see things changing? Because I think that you know, I heard a statistic too, which is one of those unintended consequences, right? Because when you lock down these Western countries, you know, even even Europe and Asia, you you inhibit travel, you inhibit tourism, right? Which economies around the world rely on, and those aren't probably going to come back for a really long time. And people are, you know, just dying of starvation, let alone you know mental illness wise. And so, like, what are where else do you see these kind of cloggings of the economy? you write about in your in your book that are going to have an impact eventually. They may not seem that dire right now, but the wheels are in motion so that the, you know, there's going to be some pretty dire end results. Right. That's why the, you know, the subtitle of the book, The New Great Depression, Winners and Losers in a Post-Pandemic World. And we have both. So I think we know who a lot of the, the losers are. I mean, you know, air transportation, uh, cruise ships, uh, resorts, uh, gambling casinos, uh, and a lot of others. I was in, uh, recently moved in bought a new TV set for our new uh, apartment. I was in Best Buy and I was talking up the salesman. I said, how's business? He goes, never better. He said, because everyone's staying home. So they're buying TVs, stereos, <laughs> you know, DVD players, whatever. I said, okay, that makes sense. So they're they're one of the winners. But uh, yeah, airline uh, industry is a good example because it's it was originally down 80 to 90%. Uh, it's come back a little bit, but nowhere near all the way. And it's still down over 50% from where it was this time last year. The bigger question is, will it ever come back? And this is where the adaptive behavior comes in. Once people get used to, you know, working from home using Zoom, or they just, you know, maybe the airlines say, hey, we got plans, we're back to our normal schedule. Nobody wants to go anywhere because they're still worried about the virus. Well, the pandemic's far from done, by the way. We're, we're not even out of the pandemic stage. In fact, it's getting worse. The caseload and the fatalities and the hospital utilization right now are worse than they were last March and April when obviously things were pretty bad. But some of these things may never come back. You know, even if restaurants reopened, if they made it this far, are people racing to go out to dinner? I, I like going out, but I'm not sure most people are. A lot of people are afraid. They've been scared. They've been lied to by government officials and, and others who kind of don't know what they're talking about. And so, uh, and by the way, I tell people whenever anyone you know, kind of wags a finger at you and says, you know, follow the science, follow the science, or the science is settled. They don't know anything about science. If you know anything about science, you know that science is never settled. You know, Einstein didn't think Newton had the last word, and Niels Bohr didn't think Einstein had the last word, and they're still debating it. And that's okay. That's what good science is. But the idea that there's some kind of science standard out there, and you can pull it off the shelf and wave it at somebody and tell them what to do is just not true. But the politicians go through the motions and, and it does have, as I say, very, very disastrous consequences. So commercial real estate is a disaster. It will stay that way for a while. I wouldn't touch it until maybe 2022, maybe later at the earliest. We're depopulating the cities. Cities are the greatest wealth creating mechanisms in the history of civilization. I mean, what is a city? You bring together all this diverse talent. So you've got you know, bankers and lawyers and accountants and engineers and artists and writers and dancers and, and, and everyday people with all different backgrounds. You bring them all together and then the ideas start flowing. And as I said, they're, they're just these incredible wealth creation machines. Well, the cities are depopulating. We're seeing an exodus like we've never seen before. They're where are they leaving? They're leaving New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Chicago, Baltimore, Philadelphia, and a few other cities. 
Where are they going? They're going to Miami, Austin, Boise, Nashville, Phoenix, Scottsdale, et cetera. So we know where the flow is. So now I'm talking a little bit more about a residential real estate instead of commercial real estate. So residential real estate is collapsing in places like New York and Los Angeles, but it's booming in Miami and Nashville. And I'm up here in New Hampshire. We have no income tax and no sales tax. So that's a little bit hard to beat, but people like the weather. I like cold weather, but if you like warm weather, go to Florida, Texas. But the fastest growing city in the United States is Nashville because Tennessee has no income tax. So that's kind of, you know, you could do very well in residential real estate in the places people are moving to. Commercial real estate is bad across the board. So let's just say, for example, you had 10 floors, you're a big company, you have 10 floors in a prime office building in downtown, you know, midtown Manhattan, let's say, or any other major city. Well, Companies would never have voluntarily adopted the work from home model, but they had to do it. They had no choice because of the pandemic. What they discovered is that it works. It actually works pretty well. I like socializing with people, but you know, everyone did what they had to do. Well, it's not that the company is necessarily going to pull out, but they'll go from 10 floors to two floors and they'll say, uh, okay, we'll have a locker room. You know, it'd be a nice one. It won't be like a high school locker room, but. Every employee will have a locker. Keep your laptop and your sport coat and your tie and your scarf or whatever in there. There'll be nice offices that you'll reserve in advance, like a hotel room. So you'll say, okay, I need two days next week because I have some out-of-town clients coming in. So you'll show up, go to your locker, grab your laptop, your sport coat, sit down, have the meetings, and then go back and work from home. Well, okay, so you go from 10 10 floors to two floors in my example. And obviously, the landlord takes it on the chin. But what about uh, the maintenance people, the cleaning people, reception, the food trucks, the restaurants, the the bars, the shopping, the lunchtime shopping, all that ancillary public transportation, that whole ancillary cloud around the fact that you've cut your office space capacity by 80%. Well, that all goes down 80%. So the ripple effects of this are are huge. Yeah, there's a compound Uh, effect because it impacts all those derivatives. Correct. So I like residential real estate in places people are moving to. I don't like commercial real estate at all for the reasons we just mentioned. I always recommend gold, about 10% of your portfolio. People think I, if people want to put words in your mouth, like Jim Rickers says, sell everything and buy gold. I've never said that. I don't believe that. Uh, But I think a 10% allocation is about right. I have, I recommend a big allocation to cash, about 30%. And that surprises people like, well, why would I want cash? It has no yield. Well, a couple of things. Number one, deflation is a greater danger than inflation right now. And in deflation, cash could be your best performing asset because it has no yield. But the real value, if you have 2% deflation, the real value of your cash just went up 2% because your purchasing power is greater. Number two, cash is the opposite of leverage. Leverage increases volatility. Well, that's good if you're making money, but it's horrible if you're losing money. Cash is the opposite. So you could have volatile assets over here, you know, gold or fine art or whatever, and volatile assets over here, stocks and bonds. And that's crazy enough. But if you have cash, it reduces the overall portfolio volatility, helps you sleep at night. But there's the third benefit to cash. It gives you, it has embedded optionality. You can be nimble. So right now, visibility is not great, but it will improve over time. So you could throw your money into like, I don't know, a private equity fund or venture capital hedge fund or something right now. And I'm not saying that's a horrible decision, but what you can't do is get it out. You know, try getting your money back from Henry Kravis before, you know, seven years, you, you can't do it. And you got to cross the bid off or pay exit fees, or maybe you can't do it at all. But if you're the person with cash, visibility improves, you can pivot into whatever might be a lot more attractive based on some later information. And that's valuable in and of itself. So I recommend gold, cash, residential real estate, 
10-year treasury notes will do very well. Interest rate yield to maturity is probably going negative. That has nothing to do with the Fed funds policy rate. I don't think the Fed will go negative on the policy rate, but 10-year notes, uh, the yield to maturity is set in secondary market trading. Uh, so you get principal and interest back. You know what that is. But the minute if I'm selling a 10-year note, the minute somebody buys it for me and pays a premium that's greater than the, the coupon and the principal, they have a negative yield of maturity. They're not going to get all their money back. They're going to get the principal and interest, but they paid more than that. So they're not going to get all their money back. Why would you do that? Well, two reasons. One, you might think you could sell it to somebody else and maybe you can. Two, if you're a European investor, you could lose money on the yield of maturity, but make it on the currency because the dollar could get stronger against the euro and in euros, you would have more profit that way. So it's not as crazy as it sounds. In fact, 10-year German government bonds and Japanese government bonds have negative yields. The US isn't there yet, but if you go from today, we're about 95 basis points on a 10-year note, take that down to negative 50, that's going to be, that's going to produce huge capital gains on your 10-year Do you think that's where we're going? I do. Yeah. Yeah. So monetary policy, that was a question that I had because- you know, it just, it seems that that's going to be the general response as the economy kind of sputters along into this post, you know, post COVID world. And, you know, now you have Janet Yellen that will most likely go in as, you know, treasury uh, secretary. Where do you right. see, do you see monetary policy changing? Where do you see it going? Do you speak to that in the book? Uh, yeah, I do. And so all in chapter four, I, t- I talk about, you know, what monetary policy will be, what fiscal policy will be and why neither one of them so don't call it stimulus. You can print money and you can have deficit spending, but it will not stimulate the economy. It won't work. And there's a reason for that. Let me be very specific. So since the pandemic started, the Fed's balance sheet was about $3.6 trillion at the start of the pandemic. Today, it's around seven and a quarter, seven and a half, okay, yeah. seven and a half trillion. Okay. So so they printed $3 trillion of money. That's real money. They, they did print it. They did give it to the banks. But money does not cause inflation. Money does not stimulate the economy. You know, Milton Friedman was wrong about that. The Austrians, the Friedmanites, the Neo-Keynesians, they were all incorrect. It's the spending, right? Yeah. It's the spending. It's the turnover money. It's called velocity is the technical term, but you're right. The Fed prints the money by buying treasury notes from the dealers. So they take the treasury notes, put it on the balance sheet, and give the money to the dealers. What do the dealers do with the money? They give it back to the Fed as excess reserves. So it just sits there on the balance sheet. Unless you get the turnover... So I, I tell people nominal GDP equals uh, money supply times velocity. Okay, so what's $7 trillion times zero? It's zero, meaning if you don't have velocity, you don't have an economy. And no, that's the problem. And, dec- and velocity has been declining for 22 years, by the way. It started in 1998. So money printing can be done. And my friend, Stephanie Kelton, she's the big brain behind modern monetary theory. She was Bernie Sanders' economic advisor. She's a big voice in the uh, Biden administration. They may take their balance sheet to $10 trillion. I wouldn't rule that out, but it won't work because there's no turnover. When you get to fiscal policy, same problem, you know, the Keynesian multiplier. So I borrow a dollar, I spend a dollar, and I get a dollar twenty-five of GDP because of turnover. That's the Keynesian multiplier. But the evidence is now in. This is Ken Rogoff, a professor at Harvard, and Carmen Reinhardt, who was at Harvard, now chief economist of the World Bank, and their collaborators. They've shown very convincingly that Keynesian multiplier does exist in different measures up until around a 90% debt to GDP ratio. So take the total debt divided by GDP, and that's your debt to GDP ratio, up to 90% works. Beyond 90%, you're through the looking glass. Now what happens is you borrow a dollar you spend a dollar and you get 90 cents of GDP, not a dollar 25, 90 cents. You don't even get your buck back. 
and then it goes 80 cents and 70 cents, et cetera. Why is that? It's because people see the debt to GDP ratio. They know the debt's non-sustainable and they start doing what's called precautionary savings. People are saying, well, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have a PhD in economics, but it's going to be bad. They're either going to raise my taxes or default on the debt, or there's going to be inflation or something. So I better save more or invest in inflation hedges like gold and real estate. Well, when you do that, you're not consuming. You're, you know, It's a consumer economy. So where are we? If 90% is through the looking glass, where are we now? The answer is 130%. You got about 24, 25 trillion of debt. This is, this is federal, this is a federal government debt. I'm not talking about total debt, 24 trillion of debt in a $22 trillion economy. So that's, that comes out to about 130%. It's actually about 25 trillion of debt at this point. So you're way through the looking glass. And who, what other countries in the world have that kind of debt to GDP ratio? Well, I can tell you. Japan, right? Uh, well, Japan is one, but the other three are Lebanon, Greece, and Italy. There's your table yeah, for they four. Do, yeah, they didn't fare very well. You're, you're in the super debtors club. So what That's makes what, Japan different? A couple of things. Number one, they're free riding on the dollar because the dollar does stabilize the entire global financial system. The Japanese can kind of piggyback on that. This one. Number two, the Japanese buy a very homogeneous society, and they generally buy their own debt. The Japanese hold the Japanese debt. In the case of the United States, that's not true. About 17, 18% of our debt is held by the Chinese, the Japanese, and the Taiwanese, and some others. And so we're much more vulnerable to foreigners basically dumping the U.S. debt. Now the U.S. banks can buy it up. I'm not saying it, it, interest rates are, are going to go sky high. I think they're going to go lower, actually. But the point being, Japan's a special case. They're all in it together. And, and I actually had an interesting conversation with Saki Gibara-san. He was the assistant finance minister of Japan in the 1980s. He was known as Mr. Yen, if, if you ever heard the phrase Mr. Yen back in the day. And we were talking in Korea. And I said, Saki Gibara-san, I mean, you're worried about the lost decade in the 90s. You're starting your fourth lost decade. I mean, what's, what's going on? He said, well, what you're missing. He said, yes, all your growth statistics are correct, but the population is declining. So when you calculate it on a per capita basis instead of an aggregate basis, we're actually doing okay. Hmm. And I said, well, you're right. Actually, that's true. So Japan is is performing better on a per capita basis than on an aggregate basis because fewer people. So, so I said, you know, the re- philosopher in me came out. I said, well, the reductio ad absurdum, Saki Gabarasan, I said, Japan ends up with one person who owns the whole country and she's the richest woman in the world. And he kind of laughed, but it wasn't that funny. It was, it was that's not going to work in the United States. We're not going to have 30 years of no growth. We're not going to have a declining population. Or if we will, people are not going to be very happy about it. So I put Japan to one side, but the debt is not sustainable and is now a headwind to growth. So just to summarize, you will have money printing and you will have deficit spending. You can print money and you can spend money, but don't call it stimulus because it's not going to stimulate anything. So where is it going to go? I mean, you look at the next this next administration and you know, Janet Yellen going in there, I'm not sure what impact she's going to have, but looking at, you know, the fiscal policy, especially if there's control of House and Senate, I mean, where do you see things going? To me, it seems like the writing's on the wall, but where will that lead additional printing and programs to try to stimulate, which won't, but we'll try. I mean, do, you, do you see that same thing? Yeah. And, but I talk about this in chapter six and also the conclusion of the book. And I had this debate with my editor when we started writing, I started writing it last May. She goes, Jim, she goes, you can't write a book about a pandemic and a depression and not have a happy ending. You got to, <laughs> you got to give the reader something. I said, I agree with that. I don't like, uh, I like 
being accurate and realistic, I don't consider myself, I mean, personally, I'm kind of an optimistic person, but I, I get this doom and gloom reputation. I don't know where it comes from. But when I write, I don't consider myself an optimist or a pessimist. I consider myself a realist, realist. analyst. And so we go through the pandemic and go through the depression. But yes, you have to give people something concrete. And I do talk about that. And I, I talk about how to solve the problem in the conclusion. And I tell people, central banks don't understand this. They can buy my book if they want to figure it out. I doubt they'll do it. Here's the, here's the answer. Here's the blueprint. I doubt they'll do it, but you can do it yourself. You don't have to wait for central banks. And the answer primarily is to buy gold. Again, I recommend 10% allocation, but if the only way out of the debt crisis is inflation, I'm not saying inflation is a good thing. I am saying that it's the only way out. If you're not going to default, there's no reason for the US to default because we can print the money and taxes won't do it. If you think you can tax your way out of slow growth, good luck with that. But inflation works. And I, I talk about two cases in the 20th century when that's exactly what we did. Two different presidents, one Democrat, one Republican who did it. So that's my policy recommendation for the government in a way to be constructive. But I say to individuals, if the government doesn't do it, you can. You can go out and buy your gold right now. It is going to go to $10,000 to $15,000 an ounce in a couple of years. But I, I tell people like, say, well, it's never going to go to $15,000 an ounce. Well, it will. But it's got to go to 3000 first before it gets to fifteen. So you can be along for that ride. And, and the sooner you buy it, the better. Is the logic there similar to what it's been in your previous books where there's a, that price increase because people no longer trust what's going on with monetary policy and fiscal policy? Correct. And I in chapter four, I talk about modern monetary theory. And by the way, Janet Yellen's the bridge there because modern monetary theory says legally, and I happen to be a lawyer also, here's the Fed. It's owned by the banks. It's got a board of governors appointed by the president. Here's the treasury. It's a cabinet level executive department, separate institutions, separate functions, et cetera. Modern monetary theory says nonsense. Mash them up. You know, the way you simulate the economy, have the treasury spend money, borrow the money by issuing notes, and if people won't buy the notes. The Fed can buy the notes, put them on the balance sheet, hold them for 20 years. What's the problem? Well, I actually had a hard time answering that question. I'm like, well, that's all true. What is the problem? The answer is there's no legal prohibition on what I just said, and the Fed could take the balance sheet to $10 trillion. There's no legal limit, but there is a psychological limit. There comes a time when people just wake up and say, everyday people say, you know what? I'm not a PhD. I don't get it, but I'm at, get me out of here. Get me out of the dollar. Get me into gold, silver, land, real estate, fine art, natural resources, water, something, anything other than the dollar where I know I can preserve wealth and possibly make money. When that happens, the whole house of card collapses. But you want to be in it like Hugo Stinnis. You don't want to wait for the hyperinflation. You want to do it first, be ahead of the curve. And the way to do it is to do it now. All right. I got one more question for you. And then I know you have to go because you're on this blitz of interviews. Yes. Did, did anything shot. surprise you? Like what maybe one or two things that stand out that surprised you in 2020 based on what happened? Yeah, I would say that Nothing happened that I didn't anticipate, but it happened faster than I thought. It's the tempo of things. So even I, my wife, you know, we talk about things over dinner, or whatever. I, I, I told her a couple of years ago, I said, you know, what this is going to come to, you're going to see, you know, I know what the left wing is doing, but you're going to see the right wing with open carry, which is legal, except in DC, I guess, surround the Capitol. And I didn't say storm the Capitol, but I said, you'll, what if a million people from, you know, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, whatever, showed up with shotguns and ARs over their shoulders, which could be a legal assembly. And they, they looked like they were going to storm the Capitol. Well, guess what? Today, they did storm the Capitol. 
So I always hope I'm wrong, but my track record is pretty good at getting these things right. But if you ask me what surprised me, I would say the tempo was faster than I thought. Well, Jim, this has been awesome. We could probably keep going, but I know a lot of this is in your book. So uh, we'll post links to that on the show notes, uh, as well as your other books as well. Any final words before we sign off? No, I hope uh, people buy the book and hope you enjoyed it. I love people enjoyed it. I love the uh, feedback. But again, it's it's a lot of grit in terms of you know bad news, but there is uh, some very concrete, say, optimistic investment advice at the end. And even in tough circumstances, you can at least preserve wealth if not make money. So uh, hopefully, the book will show you. I just I always tell people maybe you can't solve all the problems on the, in the world, but if you can just shine a light on it, it's a source of comfort for people. And I hope that's the case. Yeah, because I definitely think that there still remains a pretty significant amount of ignorance out there as it relates to some of the underlying activities of government and and central banks, and people just aren't taught those principles. And it's you know it's and it's evident. So hopefully there is enough con- you know contingency right to make an impact. So, but anyway, thank you for what you do because I know you're trying to get the word out there and shine that light. So happy New Year to you and best of luck with your book launch. And we're going to do our best to get the get the word out. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Lord from the sun.